Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you not familiar with our broadcast, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And as always, that's where you come in. We are here to answer your sincere questions on anything relating to the Bible and how it relates to the entire spectrum of life, whether that's a tough question, perhaps you've been asked regarding the Christian faith, Perhaps uh, you could use some guidance and direction straight from the Word, or you'd like to dig deeper into a passage or two that has uh, perhaps raised more questions, has given you answers. Wherever you'd like to go on the Bible, whether it's uh, taking a biblical look at the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, we are all over that. But uh, we uh, desire for your questions to be what sets the agenda for a reason for hope. So uh, feel free to get in touch with us with any biblically-oriented question you have. Our only standard for the questions we answer here on the broadcast, pretty simple. Just make sure it's a sincere question, and if you're looking for an answer straight from the Scripture, we'll be happy to provide it. Uh, Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you like proper spelling of that or to join us online, our website is calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our page, ccftucson.online.church, where we are streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday, that is in the U.S., where that fits into your respective time zone. We'll have a countdown clock notifying you, as well as an autoplay feature showing the previous broadcast that you may or may not have missed or would like to revisit. If you want to join us on YouTube, it's a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our Twitter page is scottr4h at twitter.com. Twitter, obviously, you can't engage with us by hearing, but you can by speaking. If you have sincere Bible questions, you can send them to us through any or all of these venues. Facebook and YouTube, of course, the comments section. Our website has a chat box at the right-hand side of the screen, and our Twitter page and email address is self-explanatory. Just message us your question. If you have sincere Bible questions, however, make sure that they fit those three criteria. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. You're not just throwing out some uh, hot potato for us to fumble with for a minute. <laughs> Yeah. Second, if Plain you, stump the pastor, as it were. Yeah, and yeah. again, uh, we appreciate a challenge, but want to make sure that you care about the answer as well. Second is the Bible question, that it's not just involving the Bible in the question, but the substance of the answer is the Bible, not going beyond it or asking an opinion that can't be verified in or outside of Scripture. And then, of course, that it is asked in the form of a question. We can uh, do as little filtration and translation as possible. They'll give us the chance to think these things through, and of course, as we take the time to do, allow the Holy Spirit to do His thing, which we always want to begin with prayer. So why don't I take a moment to do that, and we will get into our prophecy update, as well as some very interesting questions we've been sent in advance. Dad, thank you for the chance to be here. We want to ask that you would be as well. Fill my Father and I with your Spirit, and equip us to be able to speak with your voice as well as with your words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, a brief, I guess, 
current events report, to say the least. Nothing new, but certainly things to be aware of. What's going on? Well, uh, as uh, we try to keep you uh, up to date on, uh, there is a Cold War that is going on in the Middle East, even as we speak. Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the sworn enemies of Israel, are doing their best to, to undermine Israel at pretty much every turn. Uh, sometimes this Cold War turns hot and visible, as uh, what happened uh, when Israel uh, took a preemptive strike, uh, their Operation Breaking Dawn, uh, that uh, defeated a uh, planned attack by the Iranian-backed Islamic Jihad faction that operates in the Gaza Strip. Well, what a lot of people don't know was, was this. Some people just look at this as a, you know, a dust-up between Israel and uh, the terrorists in Gaza. But uh, first of all, Islamic Jihad is a wholly owned terrorist subsidiary of uh, Iran. And uh, they do not make a move without uh, first uh, getting the okay or the directives from their Iranian handlers, particularly in the Iranian Republican uh, Guard Corps. But uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that this uh, interaction that took place just this last week not only involved uh, uh, the uh, Patriot missile batteries in Israel, uh, working at 98% effectiveness as far as knocking out the Islamic Jihad missiles, but also Israel took the additional step of conducting three raids in the Middle Eastern country of Yemen, which is on the south part of the uh, Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Yemen is, a uh, again, dominated uh, by what are called the Houthi rebels, which are also a client terrorist group uh, that is run by Iran uh, that uh, has some uh, pretty significant armaments in place as far as missiles are concerned. Every once in a while, you'll hear about them launching a successful missile attack against, say, Saudi Arabian oil uh, interests and so on. Well, they were getting ready to do the very same thing against Israel, but Israel preemptively attacked three different sites in Yemen and uh, did significant damage to the Houthi rebels' ability to be able to prosecute war against Israel. And the, the reason we bring this up is that a lot of times we just think of these things as police actions or just a skirmish that is going on just within Israel. But uh, really what you were finding going on there during this operation was a limited but uh, regional war, a regional conflict that was going on. Uh, and Iran uh, didn't take that sitting down. It's very interesting to me that in the aftermath, of uh, Operation Breaking Dawn. Uh, we have seen, for instance, a uh, wealthy uh, individual in Tehran, a financier, offering a uh, $3 million bounty for anyone that will assassinate uh, former uh, uh, defense advisor Michael Bolton uh, and uh, former uh, uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo is especially an, an interesting guy to follow because he is a uh, definite, uh, outspoken, born-again Christian. Uh, and so uh, we see Iran uh, making these kind of moves, saying, you know, there's really nowhere you can go uh, where we can't get at you. Now, that kind of coincides with another event that we talked about quite a bit last week, and that was the attack on writer Salman Rushdie in Chautauqua, New York. Uh, there are those who are now speculating, and, you know, take it with a grain of salt, it is speculation, 
that this uh, individual that was involved was uh, sent by the Iranian government to send a message to, uh, say, prominent individuals like Mike Pompeo or Michael Bolton, or uh, John Bolton, I should say, Michael Bolton's the singer, uh, but John Bolton... Uh, Music and, is uh, Haram and Islam. And, and others, uh, saying, you know, wherever you are, we can go after you. Uh, we've got all kinds of followers, and all we have to do is activate one of our sleeper cells and uh, you will have no peace or security as long as things are uh, at odds between us and you. So, you know, interesting things for sure going on along those lines. As you know, the Biden administration is doing its best to jumpstart the so-called Iran nuclear deal that was the centerpiece of Middle East policy under the, uh, the previous Obama administration. Uh, things are not going pretty well for one reason. The Iranians believe that they can grind the Europeans and the United States to more and more concessions, and they're doing uh, an excellent uh, job of that, by the way. Uh, There was an interesting analysis about what's going on in these negotiations as far as putting a cap on Iran's uh, mad dash towards becoming a nuclear power and using those nuclear weapons to uh, exterminate what they call uh, the great Satan and the little Satan. The little Satan is the Zionist enemy entity that is Israel, the great Satan, the United States. So uh, really interesting comments uh, by Dov Zakim. He's a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's quoted in the Jerusalem Post as giving this uh, assessment about uh, Iran's uh, prospects in these negotiations regarding the nuclear deal. Iran sees their playing a win-win game. This is what uh, Zakim said. If the U.S. agrees to compensate Iran in the event that a future president walks away from the deal, and that's one of the things Iran's pressing for, Iran wins. If the International Atomic Energy Association uh, Agency, I should say, investigation into the Iran nuclear program is stopped, which they say is a uh, non-negotiable for them, the IAEA has uh, revealed that uh, they found uh, uranium, uh, enriched uranium in some of their inspections. Uh, they uh, are saying that that has to stop, and the IAEA has to uh, recant the idea that they found these actual nuclear samples. Uh, if they do that, Iran wins. If the, uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps is taken off the terrorist list, Iran wins. And if the deal collapses and Iran proceeds with its nuclear weapons program, Iran wins that one, too. Well, the only solution to all of this is for Iran to be confronted by a unified West with a take-it-or-leave-it deal that will either uh, force Iran to go headlong into building their nuclear weapons program or experience such severe sanctions economically, it could destabilize the rule of the Mad Mullahs. That's the only card left on the table. Uh, Personally, this is my opinion, take it for what it's worth, I don't see the powers in the West having that kind of resolve. So uh, I think you're going to see Iran having their cake and eating it too. Uh, Iran realizes that uh, a weakened West is something that they can exploit. And uh, one of the things that you discover from just uh, the interactions historically that Iran has had with the West is any kind of perceived weakness in the West is an invitation for them to assert uh, their dominance and to uh, continue to pursue their agendas. So uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, Pray uh, that uh, the Lord intervenes and protects uh, Israel and, by extension, the United States from a uh, nuclear-equipped Iran. Some people say, well, you know, do they really have the ballistic missiles necessary 
to uh, hit the United States from Iran right now. Don't need to. All you need to do is say, for instance, put one of these uh, uh, nuclear weapons uh, on a boat and sail it into New York Harbor. You can do incredible damage that way. So uh, their goal is not to wipe out the United States. They can't. They know they can't do that. But their goal is to rally the troops, so to speak, and uh, try to stir up what they believe is the last days and the end times, according to Islamic theology, that uh, the 12th Imam, uh, their... Uh, Muslim Messiah, for lack of a better term, is going to reveal himself when all nations of the world are at war. Well, what better way to do that than stirring up a war between the United States and uh, entities and powers in the Middle East? So that's the way these people think. Uh, They believe that death is a reward. Martyrdom is the only way, uh, correct, Sean, that you can guarantee that you're going to go to Islamic heaven, correct? Yeah, very, very brief history lesson for you. It was at the famous Battle of Badr, that's B-A-D-R, no other vowelization there, and you can look this up in Islamic sources. The most prominent would, of course, be Sahih al-Bukhari, the Hadith narrations, and the Sunnah, which Sunni Muslims emphasize as well, but Shia also acknowledge early Islamic history, the most prominent of which is available for free online in History of Al-Tabari. That's A-L-T-A-B-A-R-I. But in History of Al-Tabari, it notes that there was an incident, and this followed through with the Battle of the Trench and many others, that justify suicide bombings today, and I'll mention that as well in a moment. But the mindset is, when Muhammad was seeking vengeance on the Meccans for not venerating his god, despite the fact he had made no quiet terms that he planned to conquer all of them, he promised, and this was the only time that such an assurance was made, except to those of his close companions, this is just as a broad rule, if anyone gives his life in Allah's cause, then he is guaranteed paradise. Unfortunately, of course, to the people he spoke those words to, and people he even directly promised paradise, the uh, Caliph Abu Bakr said, even if I had one foot in paradise, I would still fear Allah's deception, that I was just being tricked by Allah, who is known by one of his 99 names, Al-Makr, the greatest of deceivers. So the point of emphasis (laughs) is that Muslims don't have any assurance of salvation. One of the five, or uh, the five pillars, of course, but the six articles of faith is belief in predestination, that Allah's will for your life and afterlife will ultimately be decided for you regardless of your actions or intentions. But the greatest evidence for that is martyrdom, and of course that is something that uh, warrants a lot more carnal rewards than most in the Muslim perspective. Now, when we see future battles, like for example, when Muhammad started employing catapults, there was the risk of Muslims dying in battle as a result of collateral damage. And he said anyone who dies in the way of jihad as a broad uh, camp, whether they die as the result of the jihad or in committing the jihad, thus Muslims have no problem attacking sites that may also involve the lives of other Muslims. There is literally no place safe apart from those who, of course, have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, those are the number one targets, or number two compared to the Jews. 
that's another uh, reinforced point. But note this, the example of their prophet, the history of their religion, and the foundations of their understanding of salvation are not only hopeless, but the only possible way that they could even hint to themselves. And this is usually the case, by the way, for Muslims who have lived a nominal life up until a certain point and start taking it seriously. These are the ones, ironically enough, who are the most prone to commit larger acts of terrorism because they have no assurance otherwise. They can't look to their bida and their baraka balancing out their good deeds and their bad deeds. They have no assurance of their Islamic faithfulness being right. a metric to know whether Allah has predestined them for life or death, for Jannah or paradise. So the point being made is just that. When you're talking to and thinking about the Muslim people, you're thinking about people who have no assurance, who are in desperate fear of their God's tyranny, of his deception and his manipulation of them. These people need our sympathy, our empathy, Empathy and most importantly, our prayers, because without the gospel, what else could they possibly turn to? This is the foundation of their culture, is understanding, I have no say in this, but I can say what at least I have time to, and this will hopefully prove it to myself and to others. It's a very honor-based culture, and they unfortunately see honor in the slaughter of innocents. Yeah, well, you know, again, speaking of the slaughter of innocents, uh, another uh, item we wanted to uh, communicate to you. And by the way, if you want to follow updates on these uh, kind of uh, prophecy-oriented stories, uh, you can uh, follow us on our Twitter feed, Scott Richards at Scott R4H. That's S-C-O-T-T-R, the letter R, the number four, and the letter H uh, on Twitter. We try to keep you up to uh, date uh, on uh, breaking developments there. But a uh, very interesting story ran and uh, was uh, highlighted on Twitter about uh, Palestinian Authority uh, President Mahmoud Abbas. He was speaking at a press conference in Berlin when asked by a journalist if he would personally apologize for the 1972 Olympic massacre in Munich, the famous Munich massacre, where 11 Israeli athletes and coaches and uh, one West German policeman uh, were slaughtered uh, by a group called Black September, which is part of Abbas's Fatah party, founded by Yasser Arafat. Well, this September marks the 50th anniversary of the Munich massacre. And uh, if you're from my generation, oh, we always used to love to watch the Olympics. ABC always used to cover it. Jim McKay uh, was uh, such a wonderful anchor as far as uh, making the events uh, just flow. But uh, Jim McKay just did an outstanding job, uh, not just as a sports journalist, but as a journalist in general, uh, kind of headmanning the coverage of the awful events that took place during that day. So, uh, boy, Mahmoud Abbas there in Berlin, Germany, of all places, put on the spot, if you will, uh, decided to do what a lot of politicians do when confronted with a very embarrassing uh, personal question. Uh, he uh, essentially did the, boy, I'm really glad you asked that question, and then went off on a different direction. And the different direction really uh, stirred up some dust, especially in Germany. Uh, he said from 1947, this is how he answered the question about the Munich massacre. From 1947 to the present day, he said, Israel has committed 50 massacres in Palestinian villages and cities, uh, standing right next to German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and uh, said 50 massacres, 50 holocausts. And until today and every day, there are casualties killed by the Israeli military. 
You well, keep using that word. I well, do not think it means what you think. Well, if you really want to offend people in Germany, right, you, you want to jab at a very sensitive wound, um, mention the Holocaust, you know, especially in a way that demeans uh, the actual event. Uh, Chancellor Scholz uh, did not immediately react to Abbas on stage, but later tweeted, I'm disgusted by the outrageous remarks made by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. For us Germans in particular, any relativization of the singularity of the Holocaust is intolerable and unacceptable. I condemn any attempt to deny the crimes of the Holocaust. Uh, Germany's ambassador to Israel, uh, Stefan Siebert, tweeted what President Abbas said in Berlin about 50 Holocausts is wrong and unacceptable. Germany will never stand for any attempt to deny the singular dimension of the crimes of the Holocaust. Uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid of Israel said Mahmoud Abbas accusing Israel of having committed 50 Holocausts while standing on German soil is not only a moral disgrace but a monstrous lie. Six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, including one and a half million Jewish children. History will never forgive him. So uh, immediately the spin doctors went to work uh, from his office. Uh, Abbas staff said President Mahmoud Abbas reaffirms the Holocaust is the most heinous crime that has ever occurred in modern human history. His answer was not intended to deny the specificity of the Holocaust, which was committed in the last century and is condemned in the strongest terms. What is meant that by the crimes that Abbas spoke of are the massacres committed against the Palestinian people since the Nakba by Israel forces, crimes that have not stopped to this day. Well, the term Nakba is a word in Arabic that refers to catastrophe. It literally means the establishment of the nation of Israel. They consider that to be a complete and total disaster. The Jews uh, exist. What this, a crime. This is not the first time that Abbas has gotten into uh, you know, hot water over anti-Semitic remarks. As a doctoral student in the Soviet Union in the 80s, he wrote a thesis that alleged a secret relationship between the Nazis and early advocates for a Jewish state. Uh, he claimed that the Jewish people were not persecuted because of their religion. It was because of their usury and their dominance of the banking industry, which are two uh, really ugly anti-Semitic canards that are usually brought out. Uh, in uh, people that are looking for excuses to persecute the Jews. Even so, watching Zeitgeist. Yeah, so the, the, the bottom line is, is this. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas kind of put his cards on the table. Why did he make that remark? Well, first of all, and this is something you got to watch for in these remarks in a practical sense, if you're going to really understand what's going on in the Middle East, he did not make these remarks in English, which he speaks very well. He did not make his remarks through a German translator. He made these remarks in Arabic. If you really want to understand what Arab leaders are up to, don't look at what their uh, particular uh, spin organizations uh, put out for the Western press. Another feature of a faithful Muslim is the whole idea of takia. That is, that you can use deceptive terms to mislead your opponents to gain a strategic advantage. And so when you see an individual like Mahmoud Abbas saying things like this, he's not speaking to the German people, he's speaking to his own. 
He's speaking to the, uh, the Palestinians and saying, see, I know you're in favor of Islamic Jihad. Do you consider them martyrs? You question my leadership because uh, I haven't taken one for the team personally. Uh, but see, I'm on your side. I hate the Jews just as much as you do. Uh, so that's why he would make such outrageous statements. Uh, so, you know, realize that, uh, as always, it's a propaganda battle that is going on there and that the enemies of God's people uh, certainly do not have any qualms whatsoever about uh, using deceptive dialogue in order to further their aims. Uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, I think what we are seeing, there's some other reports about Hezbollah and Lebanon uh, really beginning to ratchet up uh, their rhetoric as far as uh, taking out an Israeli natural gas platform in the near future. If something like that happens, boy, the whole uh, situation could blow up. And, you know, if, unless you think this is something that doesn't affect the United States, we've also seen Iranian-backed uh, militias in Syria attacking United States positions in Syria right now, in that area and in Iraq. So uh, what we have is a cold war in a sense, the way the media covers it. But in a lot of ways, it's a hot war because you've got missiles being fired. Uh, you've got uh, individuals uh, being uh, slaughtered. You've got citizens, uh, you know, civilians uh, being uh, killed on both sides. Uh, really, what we're seeing is a slow motion war in the Middle East. So continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Continue to pray uh, that uh, the Muslim people there would hear the good news of Jesus, that they don't have to live in fear of this capricious and deceptive uh, God that was invented uh, by Muhammad and his followers, that they can know the true and living God and that uh, he can give them true assurance of eternal life, not based on taking out as many of your enemies as possible, but uh, based upon dying to yourself. You know, realizing we can't be made right with God by religious effort, but only through uh, the miracle of Jesus dying for us and rising from that, which Islam, uh, by the way, uh, explicitly denies. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have your coexist bumper sticker because the Islam C wants to eat all the other letters. Yeah, and Islam denies, okay, that uh, that Jesus died. Sure, 157. And, and, and rose from the dead. So uh, you can't have it both ways. Uh, there's amazing things going on. One of the reasons that we're seeing so much uh, violence against Christians in places like Nigeria, and, and welcome to those of you in Nigeria, Adini and others who uh, uh, are doing just such wonderful work and are regular uh, uh, participants in our program here. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're seeing are so many uh, Muslims in sub-Saharan Africa coming to know the Lord that uh, there is a spasm of violence by the uh, Muslims there because they know they really can't uh, compete spiritually with the message of Jesus and his love and his forgiveness. And so uh, they attempt uh, to uh, silence those who would proclaim it. So be praying, be praying that uh, the word continues to go forth and be praying that many, many people come to know the Lord in these crazy days. And speaking of availability of salvation, got a question from Mac who wants to know, how do we receive grace and how do you know when the Holy Spirit is working in your life? Uh, I'll deal with the second one briefly. Why don't you start with the first one though, since that's uh, far more critical? Yeah, well, uh, probably one of the, uh, the most wonderful verses that talks about grace and how we receive it. Really kind of gives us a blow-by-blow -blow description of how grace becomes a reality in our life. It's found in the book of Titus, chapter 3. Uh, 
in uh, Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, uh, Paul writing to uh, his protege, Titus, who was there in Crete, a tough mission for sure, sharing in that particular region, uh, said this, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Okay, so the first step towards receiving grace is realizing you need it and that grace is more than just the name for a prayer you pray before you know you eat fast food grace is god's unmerited favor his unconditional love with which he loves us and notice it says but when the kindness and love of god our savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying and things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, notice we see some very important pieces of the puzzle here, but the, the, the most direct answer to your question, Mac, is this. How do we know that we have received grace? Well, in a sense, your understanding that you need grace is an act of grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, in, in other words, we weren't just a little off uh, we as human beings weren't just, uh, you know, a little misdirected, misguided, need a little more elbow grease in our souls. We're flat out dead as far as a relationship with God is concerned. Sin, uh, the wages of sin being death, had done its number on us. But when the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ appeared, uh, he alone was the one who brought us back from the dead. By grace, you've been saved. So if you are a person who, first of all, understands your need for grace, if you understand that Jesus has provided that grace of God and made it available to us by dying on a cruel Roman cross for our sins and rising from the dead, if you understand that you have a personal decision to make to receive that gift of grace, guess what? You're a recipient of grace because you didn't figure that out. You didn't come to that conclusion. It wasn't a question of careful research and comparative religious study. The only way you and I will understand the good news of Jesus Christ and understand our need for grace is if the Lord himself reveals that to you and to me. And uh, how do we receive it? Well, we receive it by faith. We simply put our faith and our trust in God. But we repeat ourselves. Yeah, John 3.16 says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, literally trusts in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. If I come to a place where I trust in Jesus and his sacrifice on my behalf as my hope of eternal life and a relationship with God, forgiveness of my sins, and the possibility of becoming a brand new person, born again through his spirit, then I've received the grace of God. The question I ask you is, have you done that? 
Yeah. And so then as a follow-up, uh, how do we know if the Holy Spirit's working in your life? Well, here's a little trick that I've uh, found out. If you want to know at any given time, you can do this check, and you can use your physical body, too. It's really certain. How do you know if the Holy Spirit's working in your life? Well, starting a course with that, you've received salvation through Jesus Christ. You're a his miracle. Terms, yeah. And, of course, on his or through his word, you then take your pointer and your middle finger, right or left hand, it doesn't matter, and you push it against your jugular or corroded artery, you know, the vein in your neck. Uh, if you hear a pulse, then that means the Holy Spirit's working. Uh, all joking aside, uh, there are two passages generally that would inform us of what to look for as far as the Holy Spirit working. What work was he sent to do? The first is John 16, and the second is 1 Corinthians 12. John 16, the Holy Spirit's description of his job that he would be sent to this world to do is conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of course, being made aware of our need for salvation that now that's been taken up on is also followed through by a desire to be closer to God and an awareness of your need of more of Him. If you're aware of the fact that you're a sinner, if you're aware of the fact that you aren't as close to Jesus as you ought to be, if you're not so dominated by pride that you realize, man, Jesus needed to save me, that's the Holy Spirit. We can, are not capable of that kind of discernment of ourselves or others on our own. The second, of course, is an awareness or a distaste of sin. Us being dominated by our flesh when we do the things of this world and we care, that's also a work of the Holy Spirit. It's an alignment of God's heart with our own. The third and probably the most significant that people are looking for, at least, are spiritual gifts, which are listed for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the Spirit expressly says that he works in us, not just for a purpose, but for the benefit of all. Right. So in the body of Christ, when you have certain gifts, uh, maybe a desire in teaching, a desire or an um, a talent, rather, I should say, in administration or hospitality and comfort and prayer, maybe even in just being the positive one in the room. These are things that the Holy Spirit... <laughs> yeah, we could start small. Yeah. yeah, these are things that the Holy Spirit can do in and through us. How we edify, exhort, and comfort one another, that is a work of the Spirit. So look for and recognize those things. Go through those chapters. Find good and trustworthy commentaries. If it's not as clear at face value, I think it is, but I've been doing this for a while. And let us know if you need any clarification on specifics. But note, again, the checking your pulse joke is actually uh, a statement with a lot of truth to it. The Holy Spirit's always working, and we need to note that as it reads in Philippians 1, that you began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, who's the one doing the work? The Spirit. And uh, careful examination of our life, we know uh, he's got a lot of work to do. So... With that said, a uh, question from Isaiah, who wants to know if our glorified bodies will be visible. Yeah. 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 And for, There's no really no need to say anything more. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> well, and, and you asked the question, why? A uh, couple reasons why we can know that's true. Number one, because when Jesus resurrected, his body was visible. It was able to be seen and interacted with in this world. Now, it was a resurrection body. It was spiritual and physical at the same time. It had traits that were decidedly spiritual, like being able to enter rooms without using the door. That's pretty impressive. Uh, being able to be at one place at one time and another at another, uh, knowing conversations uh, that were going on without being seen uh, by the human eye. But also, we see that it was decidedly physical. Uh, when Jesus uh, appeared to his disciples, uh, they thought they were 
first seen a ghost. And, uh, you know, Jesus had made some breakfast for them uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he even asked uh, for them to give him a piece of fish and some bread and uh, to be able to see that he has a body. He says, for a spirit does not have a body as you see that I have. So, you know, since we're going to be like Jesus, uh, we will have uh, not just the capability of interacting with the physical. Our resurrection bodies will be more than just physical, limited like they are right now. They will be supernatural, but it will, we will be able to interact with the physical world. And that's, there's a good reason for that. In Matthew 19, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So if uh, the disciples, for instance, in this case, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, us ruling and reigning with Jesus in his thousand-year reign is going to involve us interacting with the physical world, and you can't really give the orders and you know direct people without them being able to see you or hear you and so forth. Uh, really good evidence to suggest there that we will be able to be seen. We won't just be spiritual. We will have resurrection bodies. And if you want to dig more into that, the nature of that, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to go. All right. Um, and uh, again, as further clarification to, I guess, just hammer the point home, 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3 clarifies, especially in verse 2, that when we see him, we all shall, shall be like him. We won't right. be deified, but we will be modeled based off of what we saw him revealed after his resurrection. Right. We shall be in expectation of that. Let us know if that's clear, Isaiah. Now, here's one I've been looking forward to answering. A uh, question from Bob. Haven't heard from you in a while, brother. Thank you for sending the question. Uh, he attached a letter to the editor in our local newspaper, first mistake, and dealing with uh, whether or not there's a soul present in an impregnated egg after conception. The writer stated this idea is not biblical. The ancient Hebrews didn't believe in an afterlife, and he cites, of all places, Ecclesiastes 9, 4 through 10. The letter went on to cite other scriptures that may or may not support the existence of there being a soul at the moment of conception. Now, this is where the quotations get in. He's not too sure what the author intended, but he said, quote, the idea that we can know better without any scriptural warrant is typical holier than thou. So he's asking for specific scriptural proof. What would you be your take on this topic? But more importantly, does the Bible say... Uh, Thank you, Bob, for the question. Uh, first, I guess we'll take this in three steps. When it comes to the holier-than-thou mindset, obviously he's setting this up where he can just say, no, 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 okay, that's what not... what fallacy is that, by the way? Several at once, but let me just uh, yeah. give the example so that we can show the formula doesn't actually solve anything. When someone's demanding exact words... When someone's saying, no, that doesn't qualify for the exact warrant I'm looking for. You'll see this with Muslims when they say, where did Jesus say, I am God, worship me, in those words. You can go to John 5.23, where it says, if you don't worship me as you worship the Father, you don't worship the Father or the Son, but they'll say, no, 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 I don't care about that. Where does he say, I am God? I'm looking for those words in that order. So in this situation, this 
uh, writer is saying, I want to see a scripture that says the moment of conception is when the soul enters the, uh, the body. Which is, of course, ridiculous because terms like conception, terms like zygotes or eggs or sperm or these sort of things are modern <laughs> scientific identifications, and these would be the sort of things they'd overqualify without stating that. So be aware of those kind of... I wouldn't even say word games, just these slimy cop-outs, and I mean that because when someone is talking to you but not talking to you, there's nothing more disrespectful. So make sure that you're talking to someone who's actually listening. If they put this kind of criteria up, they're not listening. Don't waste your time. So would this be an example of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy we were talking about yesterday? No, that would this, be This reverse. person has pretty much decided that the Bible doesn't speak to this issue and so because the Bible doesn't speak to this issue they've already made up, whatever example you give to them, they'll say, no, 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 you're just proving my point. It would be in reverse. I yeah. would say, um, for ex instance, the Bible is pro-abortion. They would make that claim and then draw the target around it and saying, oh, well, it says that Adam uh, became a living soul when God breathed into his nostrils. Therefore, I'll overemphasize breath. And I'll minimize the passages. Psalm 139, for instance. Yeah. And, and that would be an example of the sharpshooter fallacy. Yeah. Uh, this kind of logical error isn't really logic, it's just lying. But that's, again, not a fallacy, that's just false. Yeah. Note this point, though. If someone brings that structured uh, objection up to you, they're not listening to you, or they're reciting it from someone who's insincere. Make sure you note the difference, but be careful talking to someone like that. This person works in the news, so you be the judge. But um, the second one very much amuses me when he says the ancient Hebrews didn't believe in an afterlife. Well, ancient Hebrews obviously have high regard for what they call the Tanakh. It's an acronym, acronym basically conjoining the Nevavim, the Kethuvim, and the Torah, and in that order they would comprise the Old Testament, in a bit of a different order than ours, but granted still including not just the first five books of Moses, but the writings of the prophets in major and minor, and the writings of the Psalms, particularly that of David. And since he acknowledges Ecclesiastes as a term, I'm assuming he'll also acknowledge David. But let's get into that in a minute. In the book of Daniel chapter 12, this is uh, going to be an amusing one, it says, and this is regarding uh, the days of the future, and again, Daniel chapter 12, let me start in verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince that stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, so in the future, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, at the time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now notice this recognition of writing, of record. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there will be a point that those who have physically died, according to the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 12, specifically verse 2, where it notes they will not only come to life, but continue to live forever. What do we call that? That would be in afterlife. Right. But don't take Daniel's word for it. Maybe because he was taken to Babylon, he got influenced by things that weren't even in the Persian and Babylonian religion. Let's again go to the book that he himself cited in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 10, apparently, it doesn't, but it makes the point that you should enjoy life while you can. And for those of you who don't know, 9.4 begins, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Right. And it's noting the value of being, you know, alive as a good thing. But this 
just doesn't definitively say this life is all that there is. Also note, there would be another nail in the coffin of this mindset when we look at God in mind here. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 9, it says, and this is, uh, let's uh, let's uh, keep and note this point as well. Let's go to verse 13 where it says, let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, to the person who would object to the afterlife would basically roll their eyes at this and say, well, what does it matter the way I live my life? If God's going to bring it into judgment, all that's being talked about here is an opinion of me after I no longer exist. It would be the the Stephen Wright joke of, of nihilism. Basically, you don't exist, then you exist, then you stop existing. So this existence is basically a brief interruption of an existence. It doesn't matter to anyone, or for that matter, to God, if you would bring our deeds into judgment unless we were there to answer for them, and there were long-term consequences to that. Yeah. But this is, uh, yeah. this is that, uh, you know, prodigal child Solomon and his aberrant lifestyle. Maybe his views were corrupted by all of his pagan wives. Let's uh, maybe go to... Uh, passage, maybe those of you listening, Psalm twenty-three. Uh, what well, does David yeah, make I, observation about? I, yeah, I uh, I was in a uh, class at the U of A. A uh, individual was, uh, uh, you know, and it's just funny how uh, I, it was a uh, sociology class and how this uh, individual, a doctorate in sociology, decided to take time out of the class to opine on spiritual matters and said the exact same thing. It's really kind of a standard uh, default position and some people's mentality. So, well, you know, the uh, idea of an afterlife is a New Testament concept. Uh, the, the Jewish people don't believe it. Uh, the, in the Old Testament, it's never even taught. And, you know, I mean, one that tends to lead with my mouth, I raised my hand, and I said, okay, um, you say it's not taught in the Old Testament. Well, what do you think David meant when he said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What do you think that's teaching? And to this professor's credit, she stopped and she goes, I never thought of that. Psalm so, 23. Psalm 23 is pretty, you know, I mean, you don't have to really be a Hebrew scholar to, to know that one. Well, and maybe let's say it's a poetic observation. It's meant to describe just the impact of God's eternality, but not necessarily David's. Let's even grant that stretch. In the historical section of David's life, there was a prophecy that was made over him and his family line, where we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is an important one for Jews, verse 15, my mercy shall not depart from him, note this, uh, or my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So God is establishing David's throne, not just to his lifetime, not just to his descendants' lifetimes, but in perpetuity. Now, what would every single Jewish scholar worth his matzah, I thought that one through, say about this significant prophecy? Would he say there would always be a king in the lineage of David? Because after the Babylonian exile to the modern day, by the way, we don't see that. What was this predicting? The Messiah's kingdom. Right. And if there's to be an eternal ruler, that means there also needs to be an eternal status of those being ruled. 
Maybe I'm stretching, maybe I'm not, but this is where my sass reaches its peak. If you're going to talk to a Jewish person and you want to get them held on an authority, go to the first five books of the Bible. And for the Jews to have no idea or no claim to the afterlife is not only a blatant misrepresentation of their culture, history, and spiritual understanding of things, but it's outright deceptive. In the book of Exodus, chapter 3 and verse 5, a very significant event, by the way, in Jewish history, said, and this is speaking to a man by the name of Moses, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, now didn't another uh, renowned Jewish rabbi offer commentary on what that meant? What was his insight? Uh, I think his name was Jesus, right? Well, and what was his comment when the Sadducees, who interestingly enough shared this news article writer, Second Strike, uh, opinion about the afterlife? They didn't believe in the supernatural at all, but the Pharisees, for whatever reason, did. Yeah, they uh, well, challenged him. Yeah, inter interesting interaction in Matthew twenty-two, in verse twenty-three. It says that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, well, like you said. No, no lie, afterlife. No lie like an old lie. Uh, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this refers to what was known as the law of the brother-in-law. The Levite. It's described in uh, Deuteronomy 25. Also to, in the Torah. Uh, that uh, if a man died without children, his brother had to marry the wife and then have a child to keep that uh, man's posterity alive. So you better believe if your brother was starting to date somebody, you'd take great interest in his selection because you never knew how this was going to affect you personally. So th th this is not a stretch. This is not something that is unbiblical. This was a law of Moses. And before you start preemptively making the objection, but now you're in your New Testament, remember this is a commentary by a recognized rabbi. Even if you go to the Talmud and note that Jesus was a sorcerer and a false teacher, if the false teacher makes a true observation, you got to deal with it. What was, his, what was their objection first, then what was his well, response? They said, now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he was married and had no offspring and left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, and even to the seventh. Um, Levi, what was she feeding them? Yeah, Levi Lesko had that uh, interesting observation. Man, what a bad cook. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now, we do see polygamy practiced in the Old Testament, but it was a patriarchal society. The idea of having of one woman having seven husbands was absolutely abhorrent to their first century sensibilities. It was a non-starter. That's why it was such a difficult question for the Pharisees who believed in a resurrection to answer when the Sadducees, who did not, uh, would use it against them. They consider it their unanswerable question. It was. It, it was, would make absurd the idea of an afterlife because it had to reconcile these sticky businesses. Yeah. So, 
How does Jesus deal with it? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Now here's where we get to the Exodus passage. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And we are told in the parallel accounts, the Pharisees said, well spoken, sir. They'd never thought of answering that question in that way. And they hated Jesus, right? Right. But So again, speaking to the individual that you wrote this letter to and that responded with the claim that Jews didn't have a belief in the afterlife, again, I'll make this response as much as I have to. One moment, the uh, phone connect. And we'll, uh, of course, have this checked out once we have a soundboard in function, and you know I'm going to abuse that thing to kingdom come. Yeah. Well, so... That's it, mister. You just lost your brain privileges. But now as a follow-up, then regarding the issue of life at conception, also in the Old Testament... Well, let me, let me add one other thing to this. Just be- one more thing. Because just one more thing, like Columbo would say. You know, when someone brings that sort of thing up... Um, and they make these bold statements, you know, you can say, well, no less an authority than Jesus, who was very well-versed in Judaism of his day, disagreed with you. Uh, Inevitably, they'll come back, Bob, with something like, well, we know a lot more uh, about Judaism than they did in Jesus' day. And, uh, you know, the, the response that you have to have, and stick to your guns on it, is just to say, so you're telling me that you know more about the Bible and what the Jews believed about the Bible than Jesus did. And inevitably, they'll have to say, well, yeah. Well, the best answer, and I borrow this from Chuck Smith, is I really have nothing more to say to anyone who's so narcissistic. They think they know more about spiritual issues than Jesus Christ. Or, as we saw in the first issue, is so willfully ignorant, they would set up an impossible scenario like, I demand exact words to prove a point. But now let's get to the third issue. When the Old Testament talks about life at conception, what are some passages to keep in mind? Well, I think think as far as the Old Testament is concerned, uh, Psalm 139 is absolutely devastating to the case of saying that preborn life is not uh, uh, spiritual life. King David, speaking about uh, his coming into the world, had uh, some really interesting things to say about the entire process. Uh, He said this in verse 13 of Psalm 139. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written the day's fashion for me, when as yet there were none of them. So not only moral culpability and standing before God, but a status and a lifetime that God is aware of, which is the definition of spiritual life. Right. So, you know, once again, those that get into the whole, uh, well, when does life begin, and is uh, that happen at quickening, like some would say, when the baby begins to move, does it begin at fetal heartbeat? Does it begin when the baby can feel pain? Um, no, I, I just think one of the, the best ways to go through all of this, you know, and it, it was fascinating. Uh, you, you ought to look this up online uh, because uh, 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 
I think it's Sean Dillon, who's uh, one of the uh, founders of the Babylon Bee, uh, was on Joe Rogan's podcast. They got into this whole discussion about abortion. And Joe Rogan brought up the whole idea about saying, so you're saying that like if my 14-year-old daughter was raped, that she'd have to bring this baby to term. And the thing that I really loved uh, about how Sean Dillon responded to this was that he didn't back down. He just said, well, I don't, you know, I believe that uh, life begins at conception, that everything that makes us human happens then, that there's no difference between us pre-born and post-born as far as human dignity is concerned. So in that situation, I don't believe that two wrongs would make a right. I don't justify murder in the face of discomfort or tragedy. Yeah. So, you know, and he wouldn't back down from that. And interestingly, because he didn't back down, Joe Rogan kind of came around to his way of thinking, because I never really thought about it that way. Like the Pharisees. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when people bring this up, one of the things to really kind of, you know, uh, plant your flag on is just to ask them a logical question. When did your life begin? At what point did your life begin? And if they say, well, nobody can know that. Yeah, we can know that. We can know it scientifically. The moment you have a fertilized egg, you have an entity with 46 chromosomes. No scientist is going to call that an it. It's a being. It is a being whose genetic endowment tells us it is human. It's not going to become a rhinoceros. It's not going to become a giraffe. With time and nurture, it is going to become a full-fledged human being. It is a being that is human. It is a human being. And so one of the things that I think we really have to share in an uncompromising way with people that have maybe been led astray and bought into a lot of propaganda uh, that floats around is this. Your life began at conception. The only difference between you and me and a fertilized egg is time and nurture. And so, you know, even challenge them with it. Okay, when do you think... Uh, the soul uh, becomes a part of a man's existence. When do you think that happens? And, uh, you know, one of the points that was brought up in the Joe Rogan debate uh, was this. There are people that have, say, survived abortions and uh, have uh, been born in spite of, say, a saline abortion. So they had, you know, again, uh, difficulties physically as a result of all this, but they're grown and they're functioning human beings. You couldn't say that that person in the act of aborting wasn't a person anymore because they survived and are living a full life right now. So when people start to play these semantic games about these sort of things or say, well, you know, I think it begins, uh, you know, at this point, at fetal heartbeat, or I begin with fetal pain. Well, where do you get that? On what authority do you say that the soul enters the, the baby at this point? And if it's at the first breath, uh, that a person becomes uh, a living being. Well, then why, then, do you entertain the fiction by uh, asking, say, a pregnant woman, oh, how's the baby doing? If the baby's wanted, people of that point of view have no problem calling it a baby. So, yeah, there Bless you go. See you all next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.